A very good morning to you. It is RTHK Radio 3 and Money Talk with James Ross. It's 17 minutes past 8 o'clock and we welcome our guests uh, to the programme. Stuart Oldcroft, who is uh, Asian Fund Manager, uh, Management Industry Consultant. Stuart, always here on a Wednesday. Uh, nice to have you on the show. Good morning, James. Uh, How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And let's say hello and welcome to Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Good morning, Hao. Good morning to you. Uh, nice to have you both on the show. And uh, I guess let's start with perhaps the elephant in the room, uh, the, the debt ceiling, crisis or no crisis. What do you think, Stuart? Where are we with this? Uh, this, this is a, an annual event uh, at the U.S., and um, it's probably one of those issues that uh, will go on and on every year. Um, <laughs> I think there's a... This, I think this you, is sound a a, you sound a bit weary, Stuart, of it. Well, yeah, it is a wearying thing because it goes on every year and the U.S. never resolve it. But frankly, this year, it's, it's worse than last year. Um, and the discussion is getting right up to the limit, as usual. But I think this year is also a rehearsal for next year because next year will be an election year. And so the, the Democrats and the Republicans, who are clearly not in agreement with each other, will be fighting this off. The Republicans are trying their, their best to ensure that the Democrats don't get their way and, and therefore um, have an unlimited spending ceiling, whereas the Republicans want to create a limited spending ceiling. But then th this is their rehearsal, because next year, if they fight even harder, then they will put themselves in, enough, in a far better position to challenge the president in, uh, in an election election with whoever is their leader at that time. Kevin McCarthy says they might come to a deal this week, but uh, on the other hand, President Biden is cutting short his Asia trip and uh, going to be spending some time on the phone uh, with uh, the, the, the other side. Uh, yes. uh, what, what do you think, Hal? Do you think um, you know, that they are going to come to some kind of conclusion as, little, as early as this week? Uh, it's un unlikely, you know, because this is a perfect political football, you know, to a political leverage, you know, to get what you want. I think the two parties are still far apart. So yesterday, uh, I think McCarthy said that, you know, um, the deal is in progress, but uh, they're, they're like way uh, far apart. So I would say that will take some time as usual. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that they reach a deal after the deadline. Janet Yellen, Stuart, is piling on the, uh, the pressure, uh, saying that June 1st is getting closer and closer. Um, uh, yes. is, is, and, that, and is that part of the manoeuvring? It is, of course. And she's had plenty of experience, having previously been head of the Fed and seeing it from a different perspective. Um, yes, she is piling on the pressure. Uh, because at the end of the day, as Treasury Secretary, she's the one that spends the money and she wants the money to spend. Um, so, so clearly that is her reason. I think the, I think the fact that President Biden is calling off a part of his Asian uh, trip will be unfortunate, particularly for those in Papua New Guinea um, who probably wouldn't have expected to see a U.S. president in, in any sort of 20-year period. Sure. So the opportunity for him to go there and now for him to not go there will be received very uh, poorly, I would imagine, there. Australia may not be quite so bothered, although Australia is clearly doing a lot at the moment to try to improve its relationship with China. So uh, President Biden might want to understand what they're doing, and that he may be missing out on. But he's still going to the G7 in Japan, and, um, and, and that, 
will nevertheless be important. Not that the G7 is likely to achieve very much this year. I, I guess we heard quite a lot of talk at the uh, G7 finance uh, ministers meeting in Niigata uh, over last weekend. Um, what do we think is going to come out of uh, this coming G7? Uh, you, you sound doubtful, uh, Stuart. How do you think uh, the G7 could be important in uh, bringing out some new policies and finding out what uh, what these guys are going to be getting up to? Mm, yeah, I don't think the G7 <laughs> actually solve any problem ever. Right? So I think you know it, it remains to be a, a high level discussion. You know, one of the most watched events, and I think Biden is going to announce some more sanctions on you know how to deal with China. So other than that, I don't think any concrete sort of strategy would come out of that meeting. No, I, I, I agree. I think the only thing that will occur of any note will be further discussion on how to deal with Russia, why Russia is, is, is still not caving in, um, where is Russia sending its exports. We now, we now know that 80% of its oil exports are going to China and to uh, yeah. India. Mm. So you know, the, those, those are the issues that uh, G7 will want to address and to try to put some more limits or, or, or sanctions on. Okay, let's turn to uh, China and April industrial output and retail sales fell short of forecast, suggesting the economy uh, across the mainland has lost uh, further momentum. Uh, how would you agree with that? Would you say that the economy isn't really growing now as fast as perhaps we expected it to? Mm, yeah, I think the April uh, data is uh, slower than expected, especially you know after uh, considering uh, what happened last April, right? So we have a very low base to compare with. And, you know, with that, we only, you know, get like, uh, you know, 5% investment growth. I think property growth is still negative. Uh, retail sales is substantially less than expected, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that, you know, it's not as uh, rosy as we thought it would be. What would yeah. you say to what would you say to potential investors looking at China at the moment, How would you, would you see it as a good bet? Mm, I think for now, I'm still seeing it as a pronounced seasonality effect, you know, because every year April is a, a slower month. Uh, but I think it's not inspiring a lot of confidence in investors who were hoping for uh, a, a lifting from uh, the reopening, right? So for some reason, you know, first quarter momentum was good, but then somehow it's slowing down. Stuart? Yes, um, China has is obviously recovering from its a very long lockdown period, which um, was going on last year, this time last year. So year-on-year -year figures probably ought to look a lot better than they do, uh, given the state of the uh, market this time last year. Um, as to whether China is a good investment bet, now that's a very interesting question, because this is something that a lot of global investors are constantly asking themselves. Um, most global investors are very underweight in China. On average, they hold about 1% or less of, of their assets in China against a, a market capitalization equivalent to between 8 and 15%, depending on which benchmark you take. Um, you know, typically, Australia is a good example. Australia has China as its biggest export market. It, China is its biggest trading partner. Yet, on average, Australia owns less than half percent of its assets in China. So it would be deemed to be extremely underweight. 
But of course, a lot of that is because of many uncertainties, what's been going on and the close down of China. But now what we're beginning to see, and this is what uh, you, you, you mentioned it in, the, in your introduction, Japan has now reached a, a, a high that it's not previously seen in 30-odd years. Mm. And that's because a lot of global investors are now resuming their interest in investing into Japan as a proxy and alternative to China. So does that mean, I guess we've seen, there might be some parallels here, you know, we've seen manufacturing uh, spreading out, pulling uh, some of its uh, production into other Southeast Asian countries. Uh, are we seeing investors taking a similar theme that rather than push it all into China, really spreading it around across the region? And, and perhaps that's beneficial for other countries outside China. Well, it is. And, and of course, you need to remember that um, Places like Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines and uh, Cambodia have all been increasing their manufacturing industries massively and taking business away from China. Um, and, 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 of course, Korea and Japan has, have been doing that all the time. But, the, but these other smaller Asian nations have now begun to do it as well. And, and so um, China can't be complacent about its position as a manufacturing center. Um, any longer, other than for domestic purposes. How do you see, you know, China's position, dominant position, uh, as the economic powerhouse of Asia, um, you know, really being challenged a bit now, and, uh, you know, some of these other countries are coming into the fore? Mm, well, I think, you know, people are busy relocating their production facilities uh, to, you know, some other Asian countries. But I think China has has been building up its uh, manufacturing expertise over time. And if you look at the composition of Chinese exports now, uh, the value-added component is very, very high. Uh, so and also, you know, over the past few years, uh, the share of uh, Chinese exports in global exports is actually increasing, not decreasing. And as a result, you know, the U.S. is seeing uh, an increasing uh, trading uh, deficit against China. Uh, so even though, you know, in concept, you know, people after the pandemic, you know, people want to, uh, diversify the risk, you know, so that you don't you don't get hit if another pandemic uh, hits the globe. Uh, but then, you know, it's a it's a, a drawn out process, you know, because China has the expertise, labor uh, labor advantage, uh, and also uh, uh, impact uh, impeccable uh, infrastructure. Uh, talking there just briefly about Southeast Asia, uh, we've seen some interesting developments in Thailand uh, this week uh, with uh, the changes uh, in the election. What uh, impact, Stuart, do you think that could have on uh, the Thai economy and the wider Southeast Asian economy, perhaps? Well, Thailand, Thailand is one of these remarkable places where, despite occasional army coups, military coups, um, and constant barrage of opposition um, by the army to various of the previously elected uh, political leaders, the economy has remained very strong and very static. It's, it was the first economy to start bouncing back after COVID, for example. So from an economic perspective, not much will change. But from a political and domestic perspective, this election now puts a lot of pressure on uh, the army to now no longer be the government and for the people of, of Thailand to have proper representation. I think, I think there's a, a lot of interesting activity about to occur there, um, not least because some of the policies of the Move Forward Party 
would, would appear to be things that go very much against the grain of a typical Thai um, attitude. For example, they wish to re reduce the influence of, of the monarchy uh, uh, and make changes to that. So um, moving away from the very... Um, conservative attitude of the military this is, this will be an interesting development i think for for all of us to watch well we watch uh, that with interest Stuart oldcroft is asian fund management industry consultant and how hong chief economist at grow investment group thank you to both of you for taking part in money talk uh,